March 18, 1990, the most audacious art heist of all time took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Check out season one of Empty Frames for a 12-episode dive into the Gardner heist. This season, we will be exploring other art crimes and significant moments in the art world before returning to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. This is Empty Frames. Welcome back to Empty Frames. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how goes it? It's going pretty well. How are you today? I'm doing great. I tried to riff just long enough to... to... Let me sip my coffee because <laughs> yeah. that's what I do right before we need to talk. I take a big swig of coffee. Well, uh, this episode is pretty interesting, Lance. We again talked to Paul Turbo Hendry's really becoming our um, partner on this, huh? Our go-to in the Empty Frames world, in the world of art heists, art crimes, significant moments in art history, and backed by popular demand, not only through necessity on our end, but the crowd really likes him too. He's so knowledgeable. He uh, blogs about the case. So check out his blogs. The Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist case. Yeah. Or all cases. And about our crime in general, too. Yeah, there's he's got a blog called Art Hostage, and you can link to them in the show notes that uh, are also about art crime. And uh, he's just an interesting guy. He's been at this for a long time, Lance. Started off as a knocker. That's somebody who will case a home for artwork, something that could be stolen. So he then delivers that information back to the people that are going to go steal it. So he started off as a criminal, and now he's a go-between, a liaison between people who are involved in art crimes and law enforcement. And he writes about it, and he does research all the time. He helps recover pieces of art. So that's what we're talking about here is uh, his involvement in the recovery of Da Vinci's Madonna. So we're talking about Leonardo da Vinci. Heard of him? His uh, version of Madonna of the Yarnwinder. Really interesting painting. Uh, it, it's a woman holding a baby. And there's also another so it's, version. It's, it's the Virgin Mary holding Jesus. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. That's a woman holding a baby. And it was stolen from the Duke of Buccleuch. The yeah. Duke of Buccleuch's castle. He just kept it behind a glass uh, door like a, a glass encasement and these guys came in very uh, as all art crime all heists are very brazen uh, they come in they grab it they jump out the window uh, a car chase ensues but I'm not going to give it away to everybody right now turbo does a much better job as we just hop on and go for go for the turbo ride all right so buckle up everybody and uh, enjoy this episode and we will be back in two weeks with our season finale of season two of empty frames thank you very much for listening Welcome back to Empty Frames. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, guys. Yeah. Thanks a lot for joining us again here. Back by popular demand and also by necessity, every time we look into something significant in the art crime or just general art world, we tend to get into the underbelly of it. And then we just tend to come right back to Paul, Turbo Paul Hendry because he's got his finger on the pulse of everything, so backed by popular demand and backed by necessity. And what are we talking about today, Paul? 
Well, today um, I'm going to take you on a journey which involves the theft of the Madonna of the Yarnwinder by Leonardo da Vinci. It's one of only two versions known. There's the, the version we're going to talk about, which is owned by the Duke of Buccleuch, and there's another version that's in America called the Lansdowne Madonna. So this is the Leonardo da Vinci, right? What is he famous for? Well, Leonardo da Vinci is famous, obviously, for the Mona Lisa, for his drawings, um, and for um, being a general Renaissance man in the uh, Medici period. So, real quick, what's the difference between the the Buclou Madonna and the Lansdowne Madonna, which you said is in America? And where in America is that one? Right, well, the Lansdowne Madonna is held in a private collection. Um, and if you look at that, you can see mountains in the background, which are lacking in the Duke of Buclou version. And experts have come to the conclusion that the Lansdowne Madonna is partially painted by Leonardo da Vinci and the Duke of Buccleuch Madonna of the Yarnwinder by Leonardo da Vinci was mostly painted by him. A very, very large amount. Why is there some discrepancy here? Well, at the time when Leonardo da Vinci was painting, he would have a studio and a lot of students. He would be painting so many different works of art that sometimes his students would finish them off. They would do perhaps little things like, I don't know, a tree or, or something like that. So you may not get a full 100% painting by Leonardo da Vinci. Um, it's a lot of artists around that period or even throughout art history that the, if they're fa when they're famous in their lifetime, they would have students. And if they paint a s serious amount, then sometimes the students would complete them. OK, so uh, let me just see if I can figure this out a little bit more. So there, there's these two paintings that look nearly identical. One of them was painted almost completely by da Vinci. And the other one was probably started by Da Vinci in front of his students and maybe finished by a student. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's basically it. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the Buclew version is regarded as probably the primary version. And you can tell by the the six fingers on Virgin Mary's left hand in the Lansdowne version. I'm totally, um, I'm totally kidding. I'm just kidding. I was going to say, her left hand isn't uh, even to, in there. To be, to be honest with you, I think um, it's extremely difficult to actually, um, unless, unless you're a an, an, uh, forensic expert, um, to be able to distinguish them. Um, you know, all we can say is it's one of, you know, it's one of the um, great artworks of the world. Okay, cool. Yeah, what's a little bit of the history here with the Baclou one? Um, the Duke of Buccleuch, I think, bought it at auction in, I think, 1787, around that time. Um, and it's been in the family ever since. And he's uh, he's Scottish, right? Yeah, the Duke of Buccleuch is Scotland's largest landowner. He's an aristocrat, um, um, you know, a member of the British arist aristocracy. Um, owns, you know, probably half, if not more, of Scotland, um, plus land holdings, um, uh, all around the world you know one of those quiet old money goes back hundreds and hundreds of years that um that don't ever really get mentioned to be honest with you yeah i've never heard of the duke of baclou i mean i, I call lance the duke of wormtown but it's kind of just an affectionate nickname because of our location here in worcester yeah well yes i mean to be honest with you it's um 
uh, it's subjective. (laughs) You're a Duke, I'm a Duke, we're all Dukes. So Duke Turbo, um, when this painting was stolen, uh, what is the story there? How did it get stolen? Right. Now, strap yourself in for the Turbo ride on the Da Vinci (laughs) Madonna art heist of 2003. Awesome. Click it or ticket. Exactly, yes. In August 2003, two young men paid an entrance fee to Drumlarig Castle in Scotland, home of the Duke of Buccleuch, to view the artworks and posed as tourists. When they got to the room which was under the staircase, which had a cabinet which housed uh, the Madonna of the Yarmwinder by Leonardo da Vinci, there was one guard there. She was a young lady, I think a student. One of the um, thieves threatened her with a knife while the, while the other thief opened the cabinet, took out Madonna of the Yarmwinder by Leonardo da Vinci, and they both took off and jumped out of the window, fled across the grass where they were confronted by two actual tourists from New Zealand, and they responded, don't worry, this is a practice, we're the police, and they run to their vehicle. That um, on the way to their vehicle, they took the actual Madonna of the Armwinder painting out of the frame, threw the frame on the floor, jumped in their Volkswagen and drove off at high speed. How large is this painting? Probably the size of, uh, I don't know, probably 15, 20 inches. Taken out of its frame, it's quite portable. You could put it under your coat. So anyway... So anyway, they get in their Volkswagen, they drive off for one mile where they switch cars. They then set light to the, uh, to, to the Volkswagen and then they flee in the second car to Glasgow in Scotland. Right? They then stash the Da Vinci Madonna and wait for the initial blowback from the global media. I want to go back real quick to the castle. Drum, drum, Lanrig? Drum, Larig. Larig, okay. This is a gigantic castle, correct? This is, epitomizes um, everything, you know, we would envisage from the word castle. It, <laughs> makes, um, it makes Downton Abbey look like a two up, two down. <laughs> Not sure what that means, but it doesn't sound good. Well, Down- Downton Abbey is a TV show um, exported from the UK to the United States. So a lot of people in America would know of the TV show Downton Abbey, yep. which is filmed in this huge mansion. But Drumlarry Castle is mega huge. Okay. Okay. And they they escaped through a window. Was this a window that was on the first floor or second floor or... Seventh floor? Um, no, it was the first floor, the ground floor. Ground floor. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah as I say, the Madonna of the Yarmwinder by Leonardo da Vinci was housed in a, in a cabinet with a glass front, which you could open, below the staircase um, of uh, one of the staircases in Drumlarig Castle on the ground floor. That's pretty impressive that these guys pulled this off in 2003. You were not talking about the Gardner Heist from 1990 when technology wasn't where it's at today. 2003, there was still some pretty significant technolo- technological uh, ways to prevent heists. And just to, just to go into the castle and simply open up a, a glass panel and then hop out the window. And you said they burned the car as well, right? 
Yeah. They like, had a pretty... First of all, first of all, even 2019, you had homes in the UK and across Europe which are open to the public, and by that very nature, it's extremely hard to provide a lot of security. So, to be honest with you, in America, yes, museums and homes they do have a lot of security, but in Europe and UK and Scotland uh, especially, security is normally a secondary issue. Um, because they want to allow the public free access to the works of art. Um, and on the other question of burning out the vehicle, yes, they, they sped from Drumlarig Castle in the Volkswagen. They, um, uh, they swapped cars, set light to the Volkswagen, and sped off towards Glasgow. So they had a car waiting for them? Yes. Wow. Yes, of course they did. And as soon as they got back to Glasgow, within a very, very short period of time, hours perhaps, the, um, the Da Vinci Madonna um, was sold by the thieves to the Daniel crime family for $50,000, which doesn't sound a lot for a $50 million painting, but for the thieves, it was a day's wages, a day's work. Wow. You know, $25,000 each, you know, for two, three hours' work. So the Daniel family and a Scottish godfather of the criminal underworld called George Allen Shaw purchased the Da Vinci Madonna shortly after the heist for $50,000. Okay, let's uh, back up real quick here. Um, do we know who the thieves were? Now, that is a subject of debate because they left some DNA there, and police have been unable to trace that DNA, leading to two conclusions. One, that they had never had any criminal convictions and had their DNA taken before, or more likely they probably weren't British. They may have been Eastern European or Europeans. So, yes, the police currently still have that DNA but have not been able to match it to anyone. Okay. Is the method of switching cars, is that something common that we see in art crime during a getaway? Yes. I mean, art crime, if you're going to rob a country house, you may have a van and you would fill it up and then as soon as you leave, you get down the road and split the hall in two, which means that, it, you know, if one gets caught, at least you've got half of the hall. Um, so, yes, I mean, those things do happen. Okay. And now you said that they waited uh, somewhere for, for the blowback from the media before they did anything else. So what, what was the, what was that like again? Can you repeat that? And, um, and how long was it that they waited there? Right. After the heist, the thieves got back to Glasgow um, and they went back to where they were living. And within hours, they met with someone from the Daniel Crime family and gave them the Da Vinci Madonna and they received $50,000 in cash. And then they just went about their life and, and they've never been heard of since. Oh, okay. So this happened really quick. So it wasn't like they waited very long. Uh, so they, they sold it on the day they stole it? The day they sold it or the following day or wow. maybe two days later. You know, it was done. For them, it was a commodity. Yeah. It, it was a commodity. They'd stolen something which took a couple of hours. They sold it for $50,000, right, to a combination of George Allen Short, and uh, the Scottish godfather, and the Daniel Crime family. So now they are in possession of the Da Vinci Madonna and they wrap it up and put it away and let the heat die down. I'm getting the sense that this might have been a prearranged thing. Do you think that this uh, 
crime family and Shaw contacted these thieves and said, we want the the Madonna? Or did they say, get us something by Da Vinci? It could have been either or. The thieves could have come across Drumlary Castle and seen a hole in security during a previous visit and thought, okay, we're still that. And they know that they could sell stolen items to the Daniel family, be they um, a DVD player, a diamond ring, or a Da Vinci Madonna for a nominal amount. Um, yes, some, the Daniel family could have had intelligence that, um, that Drum Larry Castle was vulnerable and that the most valuable thing is the Da Vinci Madonna. Whatever happened, the theft happened and the Daniel crime family and George Allen Short had possession of the Da Vinci Madonna um, within a short period of time. Now, selling stolen art that quickly, is that something that happens most of the time, some of the time? or? Well, um, yes, I would say most of the time, because first of all, you have to remember, not um, um, 99% of stolen art are not Da Vinci Madonnas. They're not Picassos. They're, they are works of art that are worth $10,000, $100,000, and maybe a million dollars, but mostly ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. So they can be sold onto a fence or a, or, or, or a um, pawnbroker for a relatively small amount. But even big things, yes, of course, the initial thieves get an amount of money which they're happy with for their day's work. It doesn't matter that Da Vinci Madonna's worth $50 million. It could have been worth... $500,000, $50,000 to those thieves for that afternoon's work or that morning's work, right, for them was fine. And so that was the end of that. But the journey for the Da Vinci Madonna was only just beginning. It's a pretty good hourly rate, I'd say. Yeah, that, that works to be about a little bit more than minimum wage. A little bit more than what we make here at Crossbase Media. just a little bit. Yeah. Uh, okay, so you just said the journey for this uh, Madonna was just the beginning. Before you get into the the continuation of the journey, did you hear about this in 2003 when it happened? When were you um, were you immediately on the case? Obviously, the news <laughs> went, went went around the world, and obviously, um, um, it was a mouth watering prospect um, to to uh, to delve into. There were rumours that it was the Scottish, um, um, that, that, that it was the Scottish underworld that had possession of this painting, and I heard that initially it was wrapped up and it was hidden away in the Scottish city of Perth for about twelve months. How do you hear that? How does that information well, come that, to Turbo? Through, 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 uh, through contacts within the um, the art world, um, the underworld. Also through law enforcement and the insurance industry as well, you know. And that ended up being incredible? Yes. I mean, to be honest with you, looking back, most of the information that I managed to obtain was accurate um, when we look back um, upon the case and how it developed. I mean, I was in contact with the art loss adjuster who was bought in by the insurers, Hiscox, a man called Mark Dalrymple, from day one. I think I spoke to him the next day. And so, um, to be honest with you, you know, um, I had my fingers in all the pies from day one, really. Do people come to you? Did that guy come to you or did you reach out to him? Oh, um, I mean, you know, I'm, I've known Mark Dalrymple for years and, and he... Um, I think he phoned me or I called him and said, what do you think about that? You know, the Da Vinci's gone missing. And so it will be a case of, you know, 
Um, at that stage, he wasn't even um, employed as the art loss adjuster. But in the subsequent days and weeks, he took over the case and we used to speak on a regular basis. Is there anybody in the UK that you don't know? <laughs> Um, I think you can extend that in in the global art crime world from law enforcement, the underworld, insurers, thieves, victims. Um, there probably is, uh, isn't anyone um, that I don't know. <laughs> Podcasters that, now. That's fair. Podcasters. Yes. How is that? You're you're just a social butterfly or how do, how do you know uh, have so many contacts in this world? I, I don't know. I mean, I, don't, I suppose it's you know, 30 years of experience. You know, I started out on the wrong side of the tracks, so to speak, got an education. And now I'm sort of a social commentator on the art crime world. I mean, it's a quite an untouched world that, um, that very few people um, can consider themselves experts. I mean, you could name them on one hand, the, um, the you know, experts on art crime. Turbo, um, <laughs> Turbo, Turbo, <laughs> Arthur Brand, Turbo. Yeah. yeah, I mean, all roads lead to me. I mean, to be honest with you, like any other world, it's a very gossipy world. Yeah. And so I'm at the centre of the um, art crime gossip, you know, from each different angle. And I find myself in my little beach house as a as a sort of epicentre of the global art crime gossip. That's great. So take us on the journey of the Madonna post theft right post theft it's wrapped up and it's stashed away in perth then within a year a year later a private investigator called michael brown mike brown we'll call him approached george allen short and said if you could help recover the da vinci madonna there may be a substantial reward. Now, in the meantime, Mark Dalrymple um, had offered a substantial reward publicly on behalf of the insurers, Axa and Hiscox, of 200,000. Well, it was he said substantial, then 200,000, 300,000. At an art crime conference, he mentioned that the reward could even be a million pounds. And shortly after the theft, there was an article in the Scotsman newspaper which valued the Da Vinci Madonna as being worth $50 million and that the value in the underworld would be $6 million. So obviously George Allen Short saw that and would think that himself. So he responded to the private investigator, Michael Brown, that yes, I mean, if he could help recover the um, Da Vinci Madonna, you know, the sort of figures we'd be talking would be six million pounds, six million dollars, sorry, six million dollars. So Mike Brown then goes to the Duke of Buccleuch, the elderly Duke of Buccleuch, and says, I may be able to get your painting back, but the person who can help do that wants six million dollars. So the Duke of Buccleuch said, well, OK, uh, you know, let's talk about this. And he gave the private investigator, Michael Brown, $50,000 as a goodwill gesture, which Mike Brown then took back to George Short and gave to him, which obviously reimbursed the Daniel family and George Short of the original $50,000 they'd given the thieves. So then discussion started to take place about how 
that Da Vinci would be handed back and how that they would do it. But then all of a sudden, the case took a sinister turn when Mark Dalrymple, the art loss adjuster, appeared in a TV show, which was a three-part show about, it was called The Big Heist, which had a team of old veteran thieves going to steal a painting and it showed how they would steal it and how they would try to ransom it back. And during the show, Mark Dalrymple said, oh, we like it when they ask for lawyers. We can go to the lawyer's office. And as soon as the painting appears, we arrest everyone and we don't pay the reward and no one gets paid. Well, George Shaw and Mike Brown saw this on the TV in December 2004, and it spooked both of them, obviously. So they called off negotiations with the Duke of Buccleuch and Mark Dalrymple. Then we move to January 19, sorry, January 2005, when Mark Dalrymple trying to redeem himself, the Duke of Buccleuch, the insurers and the police reach out to Mike Brown again, the private detective, and say, would you have another go? Because now we will give you $6 million if you can recover the Da Vinci Madonna. And they said, as a sign of goodwill, we'll take you to a bank vault in Edinburgh where you can see the $6 million sitting on a table in cash to prove that we will pay you. So Mike Wilson duly went to the bank in Edinburgh, to the bank vault, where there was $6 million sitting on a table in the vault. And they said, if you get the Da Vinci Madonna back, you can have this money. He goes back to George Allen Short and says, I've seen the money. It's $6 million. And as soon as the Da Vinci Madonna is handed back, I can collect the $6 million. So the plan was hatched. And the location was decided. And what would happen on the day would be Mike Brown, the private investigator, would go to the bank and sit in the vault in front of the table with $6 million and some holdalls. And George Allen Short would deliver the stolen Da Vinci Madonna to a pre-agreed location. And the money would be given to Mike Brown and he would leave the bank. However, on the day of the handover, sorry, the, yeah, on the day of the handover, the location was, was sorted out by Mike Brown and he got a third person, Jimmy Boyle, James Boyle, to go to the location to make sure everything was, was safe and that George Allen Short was to drive to the location one hour before the meet and to drive down the road in his Rolls Royce with the Da Vinci Madonna in the boot. And if Jimmy Boyle gave him a thumbs up, it meant everything was okay for the meeting to take place in an hour. If it was thumbs down, it was everything is bad. It's a setup, an ambush, get out of here quick. George Allen Short drove down the road an hour before the meeting James Boyle put his thumb down, saying that it was a setup. George Allen Short drove off and stashed the Da Vinci Madonna again. And then Mike Brown, later on in the day, left the bank. And then when he spoke to George Short and Jimmy Boyle, they said that, that, that they had noticed 
undercover police. One was a road sweeper who kept talking into his hand. There was a couple in a car and there was a man reading a newspaper. And there was also men hiding behind the curtains of a house that was opposite. So they realized that the place was swarming with police. Wow. Okay, uh, a couple of questions there. Uh, when you say the painting was in the car boot of the Rolls Royce, do you mean the trunk? Yes. Okay. Um, George Allen Short had the Da Vinci Madonna stashed at an elderly relative's house, either in the wardrobe or in the attic, you know, the loft space. And on the day of the handover, he went and he put it in the trunk of his Rolls Royce to go to the handover. He okay. drove down the road an hour before, got the thumbs down from Jimmy Boyle and sped off. And why did Jimmy Boyle give him the thumbs down? Because Jimmy Boyle so had spotted the undercover police officers. How did he know they were undercover police officers? Is, is that conspicuous well, reading a newspaper in public these days? Well, to be honest with you, I mean, people, are, um, you know, uh, Mike, um, Mike Brown is a private investigator. Jimmy Boyle, um, and I think, had some um, links with uh, with the criminal world. You know, they get to know. Plus, you've got a road sweeper keeps talking into his hand. You've got a couple in a car. You've got men hiding behind the curtains. You know, I mean, to be honest with you, these weren't sort of um, CIA or MI5. These were just undercut. These were just police officers from Scotland who were just dressed in plain clothes, trying to be undercover. So, so the guys hiding behind the curtain that was in the bank, they were hiding behind the curtain. No, it was a no, house. No, 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 in, in a, a house. house. Yeah. Okay. No, so, no, no. Mike Brown is sitting in the vault. You can imagine. Yeah. In front of a table with six million dollars with his holdall, waiting to scoop all the cash in and run out the bank. But how did how did this person see the people hiding behind the uh, the curtains? Because he was the lookout. He was staking it out and waiting He's for the, the Rolls Royce. Jimmy okay. Boyle was the lookout. He went look. look if they agreed a location where the handover would take place, and Mike and Mike Brown, being a private investigator, was clever enough to send someone there hours and hours before the meet to check it out to see everything was okay. Sadly, the undercover police officers weren't that professional. Okay. And they got they got seen. As okay. soon as they got seen, it spooked George Short. He drove off and stashed the Da Vinci Madonna. Who was the guy who gave the thumbs down? Doyle? Uh, Jimmy Boyle. Jimmy Boyle. So, I mean, the worst thing that would happen to Jimmy Boyle is, you know, he's always erring on the side of caution. Even if these were just regular people, he's going to give the thumbs down and say, I don't know, this weird guy was talking into his hand for God's sake. Well, I, I would say that's the the one giveaway, or and the curtains. Uh, those are the giveaways from from the description. Two people sitting in their car. I, who, who are we to say that's anything? Uh, air on the side of caution. Someone in that case. reading a newspaper. I don't know anything about that. Someone talking into his hand. That's super conspicuous. Same thing with yeah, behind yeah. Curtains. But guys, listen. You have to remember. Also, we have to remember this. When we hear of a successful surveillance undercover operation, you don't hear of the 10, 15 failed operations they've tried and yeah. that didn't succeed. Yeah. You know, so we hear on the news police undercover agents arrested people, but we don't hear on the news yesterday there was four undercover surveillance operations that the police didn't arrest anyone. 
That's why we get you here. Yeah, this t- is perfect. Tim, I feel like you would make a terrible lookout guy. I feel like <laughs> everyone would go to jail and you'd be like, what? It's just normal. Someone's behind their curtains. Someone's reading the paper. What are you talking when's about? That, since when has that been illegal? Uh, <laughs> okay, so what happens now? So we have the... We have uh, Shaw, who's this kingpin. He's in his Rolls Royce. He gets the thumbs down. They speed off. We have um, Michael Brown, who is who's just left the bank after you know left six million dollars sitting on a table in the bank. Where are we at now? They reconvene. Is, right. is anybody in yes. trouble? No, 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 no. Hang on, hang on. Sorry. They reconvene, okay. and Jimmy Boyle says, "I saw suspicious characters." George Short said, well, I've stashed the Da Vinci Madonna away. Mike Brown says, leave it to me. He then calls Mark Dalrymple and the police and the Duke of Buccleuch and says, I know it was a setup. You've tried to shaft us, but um, you didn't succeed. Now, the police didn't know that Da Vinci Madonna was in the trunk of the Rolls Royce. They didn't know Jimmy Boyle was standing there. Right. They didn't. All they knew was that Mike Brown was in the bank vault with the six million dollars and that someone was going to turn up at this pre prearranged location and hand over the Da Vinci Madonna. So the, the Da Vinci Madonna is driven back underground. The next thing that happens is that the Da Vinci Madonna is then uh, used as collateral for a loan of half a million dollars. Right. Which is put up by the Irish underworld and Irish godfathers. So they then give half a million dollars and take possession of the Da Vinci Madonna. That was in 2005 to 2006. And everything went quiet. The police, Michael Brown had said to the police, you tried to set me up, it's all off, forget about this and everything. And so that was the end of the sort of police operation. The next thing is the Madonna elsewhere gets into the possession of the Irish criminal godfathers for a debt of $500,000, which was going to be used in a property deal. Now, how does Michael... Brown come across as so confident or brazen that he can contact the police and say, you were trying to set me up, deals off. How how did he not get some sort of like uh, rep- repercussions just based on his involvement in this? Right. First of all, Michael Brown was a private investigator, so he obviously had contacts in the police, okay. had contacts with the police. Um, he, know, he he used to work at the clerk's office or something in the court system, you know, so he was someone who was known. He had nothing to do with the $500,000, the half a million dollars loan. He's now out of the picture for the minute, okay? Okay. Right? So now half a million dollars, right, so now the Da Vinci Madonna's being held by the Irish Godfathers, half a million dollars has been loaned against it for a property deal. We then fast forward to 2007. In 2007, two amateur private detectives from Liverpool called Robbie Graham and Jack Doyle want to start a stolen art and stolen items website called Stolen Stuff Reunited. And what they were hoping to do was to try to recover stolen things that were sentimental or whatever they were, not necessarily valuable, and hand them back to the victims. They then went to a solicitor, a lawyer that they knew in Manchester called Marshall Ronald, and asked him to help them set up the website. So they set up the website 
and they made a few small recoveries of items of jewellery, a motorcycle, a sword, a couple of little things, and they put a bit up on this website to say that they'd recovered some stuff. Next, they get approached by an Irish contact who obviously knows the Irish Godfathers, who says, um, I can recover the Da Vinci Madonna. How much money um, would be paid if we could recover it? So um, Robbie Graham and Jack Doyle then speak to Marshall Ronald, the lawyer, and say, how can we do this where the Da Vinci Madonna is handed back and a reward is paid? So Marshall Ronald then contacts two lawyers in Scotland because obviously this is Scotland has a different legal system than England. So he consulted with two lawyers in Scotland and they hatched a plan that they would get a legal agreement whereby they would hand back the Da Vinci Madonna and millions of dollars be paid. Then in August of, of 2007, Marshall Ronald contacted Mark Dalrymple, the art loss adjuster who was employed by the insurance company to investigate the Da Vinci Madonna case. And he sent him a DVD of, this, of, the, of the Da Vinci Madonna showing that proof of life and said that he had clients who were private detectives who could recover the Da Vinci Madonna, but without any arrests. And they wanted to know and he wanted to know how much reward would be available. But the one fatal mistake he made that I, that I told him this was that he said he didn't want any police involvement. Now, any successful recovery, especially if you're a lawyer or lawyers are involved, must include law enforcement. And if law enforcement don't go along with it or they won't agree, then everyone walks away. But if you don't include law enforcement, you leave yourself open to be set up and stung, which is what happened eventually. So you're saying that it was uh, Marshall Ronald who showed the DVD to the insurance loss adjuster, and he was the one that also said that he didn't want the police involvement? That's correct. Gotcha. And you said that that's a mistake and he should have law enforcement involved to some extent? Yes, of course. Okay, so you yes, were involved at that point too. Yes, 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 of course. Because, um, to be honest, um, then what happened was I was approached by Mark Dalrymple and the undercover police, right? Um, and they asked me to put a post on my blog explaining the legal ramifications, right? And, and that the only way the Da Vinci Madonna could be successfully recovered would be if legal agreements were in place, negotiated by lawyers, and everything was okay, like what was done in the Turner case, that, that you get an agreement from the police, you then get an agreement from insurers, the Duke of Buclue, and then you take that to, to a high court judge and say, Your Honour, we want to recover the Da Vinci Madonna. Is this legal? And we will all stick to our part of the bargain. And if the judge says yes, like he did in the Turner case, you can proceed. Marshall Ronald went off the reservation a little bit and didn't want any police involvement. So after he... Marshall Ronald, Robbie Graham and Jack Doyle saw my post on my blog. They then moved forward and Mark Dalrymple stepped aside and introduced them to John Craig and David Rester, 
who said that they represented the Duke of Buccleuch, but in reality were both undercover police officers. And no one from the recovery parties knew that this was, um, that they were dealing with undercover police? Well, Marshall, um, um, they didn't tell Marshall Ronald that they were undercover police. He didn't tell Jack Doyle or Robbie Graham that they were undercover police. Okay. Now, they sat down and they had they had a meeting and it was agreed that if the, the Da Vinci Madonna was handed back, that the Duke of Buccleuch would pay $6 million to Marshall Ronald, the lawyer, who would then distribute it to the Scottish lawyers and to, to Jack Doyle, Robbie Graham, and... Whoever. I have a feeling that this isn't going to go well. Well, to be honest with you, at that point, um, Marshall Ronald at one point asked John Craig, and not knowing he was undercover police, to sign a legal agreement, and he refused. That should have been a red flag. The next thing he should have done was involve the police and say, look, privately, we're going to have a buyback here, but all the parties are agreed, and if the police are on board with this, this can happen. But he didn't do that. Now, this is the next thing. The other big hurdle to overcome was that the Irish godfathers wanted their half a million dollars back before they would even part with the painting. Forget about what promises are down the road, you know, and somewhere over the rainbow of of six million dollars. So Marshall Ronald then goes to two clients of his brothers who had one and a half million dollars compensation for some something else that was in Marshall Ronald's client account. And he said, can I use $750,000 of that to release the Da Vinci Madonna? When I get the $6 million, I'll put the money back. Plus I'll give you something for allowing me to do it. One of the brothers said, yes. The other one said no, but Marshall Ronald took it as a green light. Marshall Ronald drew out in cash, $500,000, half a million dollars, and a cashier's check for another $250,000. He then gives that in a briefcase to Robbie Graham and Jack Doyle, who then go to a car park and give it to their Irish contact, who's connected to the Irish Godfathers. And then some hours later, Robbie Graham and Jack Doyle are given the Da Vinci Madonna. And it was in a, it was in a, a like a steel case you use for camera equipment to protect it. So now they've got it. They then start to make their way to Glasgow, where it's been arranged that they will hand it over at the offices of Gately Waring, a very prestigious Scottish lawyers, where the two Scottish lawyers involved and Marshall Ronald, John Craig and David Rester will be waiting. On the way to Scotland, the weather was really bad, so... Robbie Graham and Jack Doyle stopped over in a hotel and they took the time to take to have their photographs taken with the Da Vinci Madonna on their lap and all the kinds of things that you would do, which were later published in the press. Yeah, some tells me that would bite them in the ass. Maybe you shouldn't do that so soon after mm. recovering it. Yeah. So, Well, it, they hadn't even handed it back yet. Yeah. yeah. So, right, so, the next, so the next morning... They get up, they drive to the to the solicitor's office, to the lawyer's office. They walk into the room and there are the two Scottish lawyers. There's Marshall Ronald. There's John Craig, the Duke of Buccleuch's representative, but in reality, undercover police and David Rester, undercover police. They open the 
the suitcase. They get the Madonna da Vinci out. John Craig looks at it, and there's some things on the back of it which he knows it's the original. He then says he's phoning the Duke of Buccleuch to give him the good news, but in reality, this is a signal to the police to burst in. He, he makes the call. The police burst in from everywhere and arrest everyone in the room, including the undercover police officers. They take them to the police station and they charge the two Scottish lawyers, Marshall Ronald, Jack Doyle and Robbie Graham with armed robbery, um, handling the Da Vinci Madonna, attempted extortion of $6 million and lots of other charges. They appear in court and they get bailed. And the trial takes three years before it comes to trial in Scotland. Hang on. Now, whilst the police have now got these five people, three lawyers and two private detectives indicted for the Da Vinci case, they then go back to our old friend George Allen Short, Jimmy Boyle and Michael Brown, the private detective, and they then charge them separate with attempted extortion of $6 million from the Duke of Buccleuch. So you now have two groups of people that are charged in the Da Vinci case, which will mean two different trials. And then that's 2007. We have to fast forward to 2010 when the trial starts. Got a couple questions before we do that. What happened to the $750,000 that Marshall Ronald took from the two brothers' account? That went to the Irish connection, um, someone that they called the ghost. Right. He was obviously they, they said he was an ex paramilitary um, um, IRA, INLA or something like that um, that was involved in crime. That five hundred thousand dollars went and was never seen again. The cashier's check was stopped. Oh, OK. okay so they didn't get that. But five hundred thousand dollars went and went into the underworld and has never been seen since. So hmm. that those those brothers were just out five hundred thousand dollars. No, because there's no, no, because there's something called the Lawyers Indemnity Fund, which reimbursed the brothers. And subsequent, as we'll as we'll learn, Marshall Ronald had to face the consequences of that later on. Okay. so what happened to the painting at this point? Well, the painting was recovered in the lawyer's office in Glasgow of Gately Waring, and it was taken from there to the National Museum, um, checked that it was okay. And then back to the Duke of Buccleuch. And then now it sits in the National Museum of Scotland on a long-term loan. I would add this one thing, though, that one month before the recovery happened in October 2007, the very elderly Duke of Buccleuch died. So he never got to see his beloved Madonna of the Armwinder by Leonardo da Vinci recovered. Oh, that's, well, that's, that's a bit bad. tragic, yeah. Yeah, that's Terribly sad. sad. Yeah. Okay, so, but there's a there's a whole story after this. So everything gets wrapped up. The painting is on long-term loan and seemingly, you know, safe. Yeah, secure, secure location. But what's going on legally to the people who arranged all of this? Right. In April 2010, the trial starts at the High Court in Scotland and lasts for two months of the th two Scottish lawyers, Marshall Ronald, Jack Doyle and Robbie Graham. Now, in, Sc in the Scottish legal system, you can have three verdicts. You can have guilty, 
you can have not guilty, but there's also a third verdict called not proven, which means that you're not guilty, you're not quite not guilty, but you still walk away. It's um, a verdict of not proven. It's in Scottish law. So it's saying we might think you'd be you're only a little bit guilty, <laughs> but not enough to be really guilty. <laughs> I like that. That's great. Kind I'm trying like to think about trial. Yeah. Is it, what's a comparison here? I like, guess it's a mistrial or a hung, hung jury. jury yeah. 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 I'm, I, well, yeah, I mean, well, so, no, no. Um, um, yeah. Not proven could be something. I think there is something in the American justice system, which means that you could admit some uh, admit to something, but it's not on your record or you or it's a misdemeanor or it's it's something that's, you know, it's an alternative for a jury. But it's something that is an, an anomaly of Scottish law. Guilty, not guilty or not proven. So anyway, after a two month trial, costing millions of dollars, all five of uh, of the Da Vinci accused have not proven. So Jack Doyle and Robbie Graham leave the court in Scotland and drive straight to Drumlarig Castle and bang on the door and saying, you're duke shit. We want our reward money now. We've been found. not. We're not guilty. Where's our money? The Duke of Buclew obviously wouldn't speak to them. They then tried to apply to the insurance company and say, you put up a reward, we want to collect it. The insurance company refused to pay them out, saying that they needed the police um, approval um, before they would pay anything out. The police refused to give that approval. And so Marshall Ronald independently set about launching a lawsuit against the police insurance company and the Duke of Buccleuch to recover the promised $6 million reward money. In the meantime, shortly after that trial had collapsed, the Criminal Prosecution Service dropped the case against Michael Brown, George Allen Short and Jimmy Boyle. So you had eight accused, all finished, and that was the end of it, so to speak, until we move on to the lawsuit from Marshall Ronald. Okay, let's hear about that. Well, Marshall Ronald launched a lawsuit and he couldn't get any legal aid or help with it because the establishment closed ranks. So he did it all on his own. And it was hundreds of paperwork of hundreds of pages. And um, he issued proceedings in 2014 and it came to court in 2015 at the High Court where it was thrown out, where he didn't receive any reward whatsoever. Um, and so that's the end of it. To be honest with you, it's been very traumatic. I would like to say this, however. Marshall Ronald, who I know very well, in his defence, um, he had a terrible injury accident many years ago, which left him with a brain injury, and he's, he's what he regarded as bipolar. So the Da Vinci case is something whereby I think that, that, that he got intoxicated with the enormity of being the person to recover the Da Vinci Madonna, that he let his guard slip and he didn't act as a lawyer and do things the right way. He could have done things differently. But it's like all of these high profile art thefts. Everyone becomes intoxicated with the infamy and with the whole case, like the Gardner case, whereas everyone becomes territorial and no one wants to give credit to anyone else um, for anything that they may say um, on a particular case. 
and that can be very, very um, diversive, divisive. So through your contact uh, with Marshall, uh, we reached out to him uh, for an interview, and he he declined, but he said something really interesting. He said he's deleted all his records in a cathartic exercise of soul cleansing. And uh, we, we, we found that kind of a, an interesting way to put something behind you. I, I guess, uh, obviously, this is a traumatic thing for him and his uh, family. Yeah. But I'm just kind of trying to figure out what the moral of the story is. The moral of the story is that if you have good intentions, then you won't mind those intentions being relayed to everyone concerned. And there's no good cutting corners. And to be honest with you, as lawyers, they should know better. At the end of the day, on the Turner case, what happened was the Tate Gallery said they wanted to pay a German lawyer $6 million to recover two Turner paintings. They went to the High Court in London to a judge and said, this is our intention. Is it legal? And the judge said, well, as it's not on UK soil or British or English soil, um, I have no objections. If Marshall Ronald had got all the information and gone to the High Court in Scotland and said to a judge, Your Honour, we want to recover the Da Vinci Madonna. It's a $50 million iconic artwork, but this is what we, how we want to do it. Can you say that that will be lawful or unlawful? If he says it will be unlawful, they don't do it. If he says it's lawful, they go ahead. But his fatal mistake was not wanting to speak to the police in the first place wanting to cut corners because legally there's no law that says you can't buy back your own stolen stolen property. There's no law against that. And there's no law for giving a reward. Um, if Lance loses something, um, someone steals it. And um, all of a sudden Tim says, um, I found this. There's no law that says Lance can't reward Tim for finding something that was stolen off of him. There's no law against it, but there's a way to do it legally. First of all, if I if I lost something or if it was stolen, I would make my first phone call to be to you, and then we'd go from there. And then I would call Tim and say, Tim, <laughs> give it back to Lance, please. And you I'd know, say, no. He can give you a reward. I want, I want double Lance's salary for this month. Yeah. I mean, what happens, you see, the trouble is, is that people can get all of a sudden intoxicated with Da Vinci, Madonna, Vermeer, and Rembrandt Storm on the Sea, and they get these delusions of grandeur that... and, and Look, Marshall's efforts were noble. He wanted to be the knight in shining armour that comes home with a Da Vinci and says, the Duke of Buccleuch, I recovered it. Unfortunately, he did not cover his tracks in completely. Is it fair to say that there is something about stolen art, uh, famous art, beautiful paintings by done by masters? Is there something about that that makes people irrational and and do things uh, in situations like this that they wouldn't normally do. Well, yeah, I mean, but also think we can apply that to anything that has an intrinsic high value. That's fair. You know, okay, we can we, we can be very fluffy and arty farty um, <laughs> and talk about you know. Now we can be all culturally right. um, academics and talk about old masters, but a yacht in a marina in Miami would still attract the intoxication. A Ferrari. Okay. A, um, you know, a, 
um, a yellow diamond, a blue diamond, a diamond necklace. There are millions of things. You know, if something has an extremely high value, then I think everyone can get intoxicated. Okay, so it's not necessarily like something mystical about this beautiful artwork or this beautiful diamond. It's more people see dollar signs and that's what motivates them. Well, you, you, no, no, I would say that, yeah, because to be honest with you, um, you know, you know, some people can look at some art, abstract art, and say that I don't think it's worth ten dollars. Yet it's worth hundred million dollars. Some other people can say I like this particular art. Someone could say I love boats, and that yacht there is the most beautiful yacht I've ever seen. So, being a work of art is a um, subjective notion. So I guess my question is, how could this have have gone more smoothly? Like, it, it sounds like at every turn there were mistakes made that led us to uh, a point where there's a couple of trials and, and a huge waste of money, and the painting ends up back in the hands of the owner anyway. Yeah, I mean, the ironic thing is, yeah, the millions of dollars that were used in the trials it, um, you know, could have been used to pay. Right. A pay a reward. However, no, the way it should have gone was Marshall Ronald should have contacted Mark Dalrymple and um, said, I've got a DVD. Can you arrange a meeting with the investigating police and the Duke of Buccleuch or his representative? And at that meeting, he should have said to the police, look, I've got two clients who are going to remain nameless, who are private investigators who can recover the Da Vinci Madonna. Is there a way that you will allow to happen the Da Vinci Madonna to surface and monies can be paid to me? If they say no, fine, walk away. If they say yes, then you explore further. And once you get them on board and the insurance company and the Duke of Buccleuch, you then get the package and you take it to a high court judge and say, look, Your Honour, this is what we intend to do. If you think there's something legally we're going to do wrong, can you point it out? Then after that, the trouble is the Duke of Buccleuch, the insurers had no intentions of pay or the, you know, paying any reward. They don't want to pay any money. When the Duke of Buccleuch, under oath in the um, Marshall Ronald lawsuit trial, um, was asked by Marshall Ronald, he said, did, w did you intend to ever offer a reward? He said, no. He said, I expected the police to recover my Da Vinci Madonna for nothing. Okay, and, and so that's kind of typical, too, because, I mean, we've talked with you about it in the past. A uh, lot of people who are in possession of stolen artwork are afraid to come forward, even if they cannot sell this artwork. They're afraid to come forward because they're, they think they may get the book thrown at them when they're just trying to give uh, this artwork back. Yes, because also what happens, it goes, yes, it moves into ego. That all of a sudden you approach people to hand back stolen art, and then those people want to seek, you know, they seek glory. I not only recovered this artwork, but I've arrested someone, or, you know, everyone wants the limelight. And that's the problem. And that's the problem that you get. So, how often do things like this happen and they turn out to be fake, uh, or, or do they turn out to just never come to fruition? Like, uh, what, what is it? less than 10% of stolen art is recovered, right? So this this Da Vinci Madonna is already in a category that isn't typical. Well, yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, there, there, there are operations, undercover operations, there are attempts to hand back stolen art every day of the week. And nine out of the 10 of them don't come to anything because either the, the, the people who have the stolen art know it's a, it, it's a sting and know they won't get paid or authorities won't go forward with it because they know they would have to pay the money um, and they wouldn't get any arrests. 
So it's a Mexican standoff. And so what has to happen is something has to happen where all of a sudden people can come together or it's a break on either side. You know, at the end of the day, you know, authorities say, yes, we want that back so desperately we'll allow money to be paid because there are instances where monies have been paid. And throughout this entire process, the Duke never knew what was going on, right? Well, no, the Duke knew, no, the Duke knew more. Uh, yeah, of course, he met with Michael Brown. Yeah. Right. Um, and he was informed of what was going on right up until his death. I mean, he died one month before they recovered the Da Vinci Madonna in October 2007. You know, he was aware that there was an operation underway to, um, to recover his painting. Okay. And do you think that there was something intoxicating uh, that that Marshall Ronald became a part of when he got involved in this? Something about the, the underworld that was more intoxicating than the financial benefit? I'm, I've said that, yes. I mean, the actual notion that Marshall Ronald would be the guy to recover the Madonna of the Armwinder by Leonardo da Vinci... Um, was something that intoxicated him. It intoxicated Robbie Graham, Jack Doyle. And so all of a sudden it surpassed perhaps the, 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 the monetary aspect. But he made two mistakes. The second mistake was using the money from his client account to pay, um, to pay uh, the Irish guy to release the Da Vinci Madonna without telling the police. I guess um, let me rephrase the question. I, I didn't phrase it properly. Do you think that Marshall Ronald was intrigued by the notion that he could outsmart the Scottish mafia and these kingpins and be sort of the average guy and and outsmart career criminals? I don't think so, because if that was the case, then, to be honest, Marshall Ronald would have cooperated with the police and would have negotiated a separate reward when everyone else got arrested bar him. Right. Is there anything from this case that we can learn and apply to the Gardner case? Yeah. What needs to be done is is transparency. You know, um, I don't want you, I don't want people to link art crime with the Gardner case. I want the Gardner case to sit on its own pedestal away from everything else because of the notion that it's impossible to hand back stolen art without everyone's permission. I want the Gardner case to be this one unique holy grail where we can do things that perhaps we wouldn't do on other cases. You know, at the end of the day, there are people out there with some Gardner art who want to hand it back and get paid. Authorities, law enforcement, the Gardner Museum, Anthony Amore, um, Uncle Tom Cobbley and all don't want to pay bad people money for handing back the Gardner art and they want people arrested, indicted and convicted. And, you know, that's well within their remit to do that. So that's the standoff you have in the Gardner case. And until such time as that gap is closed, then we just have to sit back and hope that law enforcement stumble across a Gardner artwork during another investigation. We call it a Bostonian standoff. Here, yeah, I mean that's what you've had from day one—a Bostonian standoff—and you know you can un- you know you can understand why why they've done that. But my only problem is is that the lack of transparent transparency um, from the FBI and Gardening Museum—you know—if that's their position, tell the public. But don't tell the public that we just want the art back. We don't want to arrest anyone. There's immunity, and there's ten million dollars. 
when actual fact, all we all know that it's a fake reward, it's fake immunity, and in many respects, the Uganda investigation has been a fake investigation. I mean, you know, normal art crime goes the right, you know, an informant steps forward and is willing to sacrifice or throw someone to the wolves and say, this person at this address has stolen art. The police raid it, they recover the art, they arrest the people and charge them with handling, and then the informant gets paid and agreed a reward or a reward. Right, short of that, right, it's very, very difficult. But every now and again, and historically, a few times, um, police can be given an, uh, a location where stolen art can be recovered and money can be paid to an informant and no arrests be made. That has happened. The Turner case, there's the Tishan case. There are other cases where this has happened. And that's why I always want to separate the Gardner case as a unique case separate from your everyday art crime. I think that is a uh, very fair and accurate assessment of the Gardner case. Yeah, uh, yeah. But having said that, it'll be nice to get a break. It'll be nice for people to actually um, feel that they can be open and a bit more honest about the Gardner case and not try and hoodwink the people or try to distract the people by talking about, oh, this is the history and these are the people doing this, that and the other and not focus on how do you recover the Gardner up. You know, I also found it very interesting that the guys from TRC, I mean, um, David Turner is in a medical facility. William Molino was released apparently in 2015 and no one's mentioned that. Um, Stephen Rossetti um, is listed not to be released until 2044, yet he's not in the custody of the Bureau of Corrections. I don't know what that means. What do you think that that could mean? Could possibly mean witness protection. Oh, oh, you are a naughty man. I shouldn't. You shouldn't have said something like that. Now, of course, it means that. Of course, <laughs> it means that. I only oh, said that because you said it in your email to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, of course it is. I mean, of course it is. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I mean, that's what everyone would assume. But that information is on a public website. <laughs> right. It's on a public right. website, and you don't need. Right, more than two brain cells to work out that Stephen Rossetti is not due for release till 2044. He's not in the custody of the Bureau of Corrections. Where is he? He's not working at McDonald's, is he? Well, for the record, I, I wasn't aware. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's amazing, though. I mean, I find it amazing. People talk about how information is suppressed, yet there's the website. You can go and search for any prisoner in the, U, uh, in the U.S. correctional system and all the details just come up in front of you. Well, we got some good gardener info there at the uh, tail end, which is pretty awesome. Um, all the who's who and where are they at now uh, players in the uh, in the gardener heist. I will like to say if anyone has something that will fit into a two by three P.O. box, say maybe an eagle finial or Rembrandt's uh, postage stamp sized self-portrait, we have a post office box, 22 Front Street, F-R-O-N-T, box 230, Worcester, Massachusetts. Make that out to Crawl Space Media. Now, I agree. I've always said, you know, for me, the detente in the Gardner case is that the crooks get, you know, those with the Gardner art get nothing and authorities get nothing. In other words, they hand back the Gardner art, no reward, no indictments, no arrests, anonymously hand back, even if it's a lesser work of art, just hand it back so that it gives hope 
We all want hope. We've had no indication of the existence of the Gardener Art in nearly 29 years. To give everyone hope and, you know, to continue the many careers of people who are use the Gardener case, you know, as, um, you know, as part of their um, repertoire, hand something back anonymously that, that's not, you know, the most valuable thing. Yeah, the Eagle Finial. The, the, you know, the, the, the vase or a Degas drawing, you know, something like that. Don't try and collect a reward and don't uh, uh, and don't um, open yourself up to be arrested by authorities. Let's get back to the Catholic Church confession box. Just go and stick one in the confession box, knock on the door and say, Father, next door's a bit of gardener art. Yeah, you can't trust those priests. Well, I don't know. No, that's a generalization. <laughs> For every bad one, there are certainly a lot of good ones there. Yeah, I'm just kidding. And that will be a happy St. Patrick's Day 2019. Good stuff. Thank you so much for uh, opening our world to yet another very fascinating story involving art heist, recovery, and just what happens when sort of average people get involved in the whole thing. Yeah, of course. I mean, um, but it's a food chain, you know, and what happens is when people take their position on the food chain, which is not theirs, that's when mistakes happen. I mean, and that's from law enforcement as well. I mean, the Da Vinci case is perfect. The Scottish police used <laughs> probably beat cops, right? They said, right, tomorrow you're going to be a road sweeper. Okay? <laughs> it's just a beat cop. And you're a road sweeper because we're going to recover a $50 million painting. From a, and from a gangster. And you a on your hand. You know, and so all of a sudden, it, that was the Keystone Cops, the first attempt at the Da Vinci, <laughs> when everyone realised they was undercover cops. The second time, it was those who were handing back the art, the lawyers, were they, those are the guys that messed up the second time by not insisting on legal agreements um, to cover themselves. And then the third one was the judicial system, which wasted millions of dollars on a two-month trial that ended with no convictions. And somewhere, Leonardo da Vinci is laughing and saying, I didn't even paint that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 